0: Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. It's with great sadness that I have to announce that my good friend and Hong Kong Heritage stalwart contributor Dr Dan Waters died on Wednesday morning at the age of 95. I first met Dan when I interviewed him to mark his 80th birthday. Over the next 15 years, we toodled on trams, rode up the escalator and talked about bamboo scaffolding, governors, the tribulations of the 60s, typhoons, Statue Square and Sir Robert Hotung, among many others. I'll be creating a tribute programme featuring lots of Dan in the weeks to come. And on to this week's programme. I was in Sokowan, the village with the seafood restaurants on the south side of Llama Island a couple of weeks ago, and there was a somewhat startling sight of a bunch of Morris dancers entertaining the crowd. We'll hear from the Hong Kong Morris in the second half. But first, Monday marked the 175th anniversary of the British forces marking Possession Point. They landed at 8.15am. Well, slightly later this week, I also went to Possession Point, which is now in a park, where I joined Robert Neild, a writer of two books on treaty ports, and photographer Nick
1: Kitto. We're standing opposite the Xiong'uan Municipal Services Building, which uh, we believe is roughly where they would have landed back in 1841, before progressing up to possession, what became known as Possession Point.
0: It's quite incredible standing here. We've got Western Market, uh, the renovated one with all the uh, material shops inside behind us. Um, And ahead we've got Sheng Wan Cook Food Centre and I'm standing here with Nick and Robert in the rain. It's it's quite incredible seeing this cross section of streets, people rushing off it, it's commuter time and and this idea that this is where the British would have first landed in Hong Kong.
2: It would have been commuter time back then as well because (laughs) We suspect, we we believe, that the British would have landed where there was a little pier, rather than splashing through the waves up the beach. There was a small pier, according to old maps, round about where we are now. Uh, Queen's Road, what what became Queen's Road, was the nearest thing to the coast, so we're probably in the sea where we are now. Uh, But there was a small pier for ferry services across to the Kowloon Peninsula, so there would have been rush hour traffic then, maybe fewer people.
0: So we've just walked up bottom strand uh, to get a little bit out of the rain as well but uh, really you should have been here on monday morning shouldn't you robert
2: guilty as charged we should have been here on monday morning but with the temperature at 3.5 where i was um we decided uh, we're very keen but maybe not quite that keen so we're here today with a balmy temperature of 11
0: so do you think the victorians were made of sterner stuff
2: oh good god yes of course <laughs> <laughs> this wouldn't have put them off for a moment
0: <laughs> do we know exactly what the date was yes
2: Yes, we do.
1: It was definitely the 25th, uh, which was a Monday.
2: And th- that came after the Convention of Trenpi, which was signed on the 20th of January. That was the treaty which was supposed to bring the first open war to an end. And everyone was very happy. They signed uh, P just up the Pearl River on the 20th of January. Uh, Captain Belcher wrote this book, um, uh, published in 1843, and he was one of the party who came ashore. I'll just read a little bit from his book. On the 26th, we were directed to proceed to Hong Kong and commence its survey. We landed on Monday the 26th at 15 minutes past 8. In fact, Monday was the 25th in that year, so that's a, a, a misprint in his book. And being the bona fide first possessors, Her Majesty's Health was drank with three cheers on Possession Mount. And Possession Mount is where we'll be going uh, in a moment. On the 26th, he says, implying the following day the squadron arrived. The Marines were landed, Uh, the Union Jack was hoisted and formal possession taken of the island by Commodore Sir John Bremer.
0: Now, you say that the the treaty was signed. Can you give me a a description of what had ensued before Britain took possession of Hong Kong Island?
2: By 1839, the trading conditions in Canton had become intolerable. Commissioner Lin was on the warpath and he'd uh, taken all the opium and destroyed it. Uh, Life was impossible for British merchants in Canton in 1839, so they all had to jump on their boats and leave. They tried to go to Macau, uh, but Macau, always having this sort of precarious relationship with China, said, oh, please, please don't come here. Uh, We sympathise, but not that much, so please can you go somewhere else. There was nowhere else to go, basically, so uh, the British fleet of, I don't know, 40, 50 vessels made its way to Hong Kong Harbour, the the western end of Hong Kong Harbour. Uh, and there they were, just pending developments, waiting to see what was going to happen.
0: So in early 1841, were they just waiting in their ships?
1: No, I believe they, they were using Hong Kong Island quite a lot. I mean, just if for nothing else, for provisioning. Uh, water was essential. There was a good waterfall in, in the western area. And so they were coming ashore quite regularly uh, to exercise, to get provisions...
0: So what, the fishermen were selling them stuff? Or?
1: Yeah, I believe uh, the, all the farmers and the fishermen were selling provisions, and um, and I, they were probably doing some of their own agriculture as well.
2: We walked from Bonham Strand up Possession Street, as it's now called, and we're now in Hollywood Road Park, which is where we believe um, the first people who landed on the 25th of January would have come, because they'd have come to that little pier, they'd have gone onto the beach and they'd have seen this little rise. Of course, the whole of Hong Kong Island is a big rise, but this is a, a little sort of rocky knoll, and I imag- imagine they would have said, well, let's go up there and have a look. So I believe they'd have come up to this place. There's a, there's a tree that's probably old enough to have seen them, a big banyan tree over there, uh, and, a, and a rocky outcrop. And if we look just uh, behind us towards the, the harbour, it's a very steep drop. So this is, um, we think, the place. So they, they would have come up just to... Uh, have a better look at the place. So
0: as Nick described, Captain Belcher came on land. Was that with a small
2: party? It was with a small party, just to have a look. Um, It was sensible to come here before the day of official possession, which was the 26th of January. So they just came to have a look, uh, where would be a good place to have the ceremony. Because Marines were landed, uh, it was quite a formal thing. But uh, initially just a handful of chaps came to, to scout it out.
0: And then what happened? What sort of ceremony
2: Well, reading again from Belcher, the Marines were landed, the Union Jack hoisted, and formal possession taken by Commodore Sir John Bremer, accompanied by the other officers of the squadron, under a feu de joie from the Marines, which is a sort of happy firing, bang, 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 and a royal salute from the ships of war. But an interesting, the next little paragraph, on the Kowloon Peninsula were situated situated two batteries, uh, meaning uh, gun batteries, Chinese ones, which might have commanded the anchorage, but which appeared at present to be but thinly manned. These received due notice to withdraw their men and guns as part of the late treaty. Isn't that sort of nicely superior? You chaps, off you go. Now run along. We don't want guns pointing at us, thank you very much.
0: But they're on Kowloon's side.
2: Uh, yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that didn't happen for a few years. It didn't happen for a few years. But I think the treaty said that, that the British shouldn't be... Um, or the conventional trend peace said the British shouldn't be threatened. Uh, and they did feel threatened by these undermanned gun batteries pointing at them.
0: So you have a small group of men coming from these ships of uh, the Royal Navy um, on to up to the mound to first have a scout and then hold a formal ceremony. So what did they do? erect a flag? or
2: they re- they erected a flag and they drank her Majesty's health as as we do every year. Uh, with a little spot of uh, marmsey, probably. I have port in here. And it would have probably been three cheers for Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Hip, hip, hooray, hip, hip hooray, hip, hip hooray. And then glug, glug, glug. And it's very a nice. very nice way to spend the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so you're about to have a bit of a nip of port.
0: How, yeah. how civilised. Yeah.
2: I think this is 1994 vintage, but... I um...
0: <laughs> enjoy. So you've got your British flag here. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, now, in terms of what actually ensued back in London despite the fact that these people had taken possession of a a piece of land for Queen Victoria uh, both people in Parliament were less than impressed
2: they they were less than impressed back in London of course it was about three months away to get a message there and another another three months to get the reply so back in London was a very long way away so Captain Elliot was uh, officially titled the Plenipotentiary, which was a wonderful title, which means he could do whatever he thought fit in the circumstances.
0: Captain Elliot?
2: He was in charge of the British efforts at that time. 1839, um, the British basically got pushed out of Canton. There was a little bit of fighting off the Kowloon Peninsula when... Uh, some British uh, troops or sailors, marines, went ashore to try and get provisions. There was a bit of roughing up, and there was a few gunshots fired, I think, about July 1839. But formal hostility started in November 1839. But hostilities meant really just displays by the Royal Navy. We had the world's most powerful military force against a very uh, backward, we have to say, Chinese military uh, capability. Why did it take three years well, I think there was, seemed to be no particular hurry. The Navy went up the coast and had a few shots at Amoy and a few shots here and a few shots there. The only real fighting happened just before the treaty was signed, in about July... 1842 in a place called Qinkiang, which Nick and I have been to, on the Yangtze River. Uh, The British were totally surprised because the Chinese there put up resistance and it took three days to, to capture the place. But most of the rest of the war wasn't really a war. There was no declaration of war because there were no channels through which a formal declaration could be made. China didn't have a foreign office. They certainly didn't welcome foreigners to Peking with letters. So there's no... Mechanism whereby a declaration of war could be made. So mainly it was displaced by the Royal Navy up and down the coast.
0: Can you also describe the timeline? Uh, the Royal Navy arrives here with Captain Elliot, Captain Belcher in January 1841. We mark Hong Kong as being from 1841, but the treaty is not signed till 18 months later. So what happens in the meantime?
2: We mark Hong Kong actually as becoming a British colony in 1842. The 1841 Convention of Tuen Pi, uh was supposed to bring the hostilities to an end. Britain demanded either Hong Kong or Kowloon Peninsula. They didn't seem to mind which at the time. They had taken possession of Chusan, an island up the coast not far from Shanghai, as security. Uh, and then this convention in, in 1841, on the 20th of August basically brought hostilities to an end but then it turned out that the Chinese uh, were very upset about giving away anything at all the British were very upset with Elliot for not not getting enough so hostilities started again and out came the Royal Navy again up and down the coast with a bit more effort this time I suppose and their intention was to get as close to Peking as possible and they got up the Yangtze River and um, as far as Nanking, and then the Treaty of Nanking was signed in August 1842. And that gave uh, Britain the colony of Hong Kong. Formally? Formally, yes. And Chu San, which was held as a security, was given back or handed back once all the uh, reparations had been paid.
0: My thanks to Robert Neild and Nick Kitto. A couple of weeks ago in Sokuwan on Lama, walkers came to a standstill as they espied a group of Morris dancers. The Hong Kong Morris has been around for 41 years, and I joined David Wilmshurst of the Hong Kong Morris to hear about this 500-year-old tradition.
3: Johnny on the railway picking up stones. Along came an engine, and broke his bones. Oh, says, Johnny, that's not fair. Oh. Says the
2: engine driver, I don't, I don't care,
0: care. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you certainly had no problem attracting the crowds there, sir um, no, I think they, um, we have
4: the same effect on them rather as a lion dance would have if it was performed in an English village. Everyone comes around and looks at the colour and the noise and the bells and the music for ten minutes and they're curious, basically. Um, but, I mean, we must have a formula that works. I mean, we've been dancing in Hong Kong now since 1974. Uh, I, I came here in 1979 and at, at that time it was very much most of the... Uh, I think all the members were English police inspectors, teachers at that time.
0: I think it's fabulous that you've got this tradition... That is 500 years old. We're here in 2016. And uh, you've got also Japanese and Cantonese members, you
4: know. Oh, absolutely. And um, not only Japanese and Cantonese. I mean, a couple of years ago, we had a a Russian illegal immigrant who was working in Macau. And he used to come over with his accordion every Sunday and join us. Um, We've had Americans, Canadians, uh, South Africans... The more young Chinese um, dancers we can we can attract the better, and as you saw, uh, Sabrina has joined us only two, three months ago but she's now one of our most experienced dancers.
0: So Sabrina Wong, mm-hmm. you've been Morris dancing for three months. Yes, I've been dancing for three months. It's a very fascinating process, I could say. So can you tell me how old you are? I'm twenty one. And what got you involved?
5: Um it's actually one of the musicians. Um he worked in my secondary school and then he asked me do you want to dance with a group of nice people? <laughs> and then I say why not? I want to try new things and then that's got me in. <laughs>
0: So, Alishom, you were dancing today and you were yes. also helping with the translation so that yes. everybody could uh, understand what was going on with her, some very specific English mm-hmm. traditions. So, why are you a Morris dancer?
5: Um, I joined a friend uh, because a friend introduced me to it and I really liked the atmosphere of friendliness that we, after we dance, we usually go out for a drink together.
0: I love it's it. great fun. I think also just the dancing itself. Mm-hmm. Um,
5: does make people laugh, does make people smile. Yes, it's a jolly dance because you open up your arms, you kick your legs and uh, makes you happy.
4: As you've seen, we wear two different types of kit, one for the, the ladies, one for the men. The women's kit, costs more to source. It's more fiddly, getting uh, skirts and blouses made to fit. Whereas if you wear the men's kit, which is just a shirt and trousers, you can just go out and buy. It's very easy to get the Baldricks and Bells made up. Sorry, the... the oh, the Baldricks. These are, this, this is, is the a Baldric is it? This is a in Blackadder. I mean, this is the term <laughs> for... So I believe ah. a Baldrick is what a sword used to hang on. And but is the, that the
0: Welsh the... dragon on the front? Uh,
4: no, it's a Chinese dragon, and it's... Um, it's crossed with a, a an English sword knot, so it's a sort of one of these harmonious mixtures of East and West things. What's with the bells? Well, they basically attract attention. Um, uh, the earliest paintings we have of Morris dancers, which come from the reign of Queen Elizabeth back in, say, 1580, they're wearing bells then, and I I suppose it's just the the colours just help to attract people to come and see what's going on. I mean, there are all all kinds of... um, folk stories about them. I mean, people, when I was a young boy, they used to say they're to keep away the evil spirits, but that says more about the atmosphere of the 1960s than it does about uh, the real reason why Morris dancers wear bells. The same with our white um, trousers and shirts. They're they're symbols of purity, believe it or not. I mean, I I don't believe it for one moment.
0: You were remarking that it's uh, begun by, can you describe the history of Henry VIII?
4: Well, the earliest um, reference to Morris dancing comes from a folk song about the Battle of Flodden, uh, where the English defeated the Scots. Uh, and according to this folk song... Which was it, when? This, uh, Flodden, I think it was 1513, but don't, don't quote me on that. Uh, this is in Henry VIII's reign. And according to the folk song, as the Scots were running away, the English were sort of cheering, and it's a, they had such a prance with the new Morris dance. In other words, a... It was new, and B, it was distinctively English. I mean, that was the whole point of it, to sort of insult the Scots. Um, and Certainly, we know that in Chaucer's day in the 14th century, no-one no one ever mentioned Morris dancing. But by Shakespeare's time, you get plenty of references to it. So, it Does, Sh- does be... Shakespeare actually...? Oh, yes, it does, yeah. I mean, I, I, I did Midsummer Night's Dream as a... Uh, for O-Level, and there's a quote in that of the nine men's Morris is quite dried up, if I'm probably misquoting it, but yeah, there are several references and the first paintings of Morris dancers come from the Elizabethan period so they've got their little hats on and their their doublets and uh, 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 knee breeches, and they're wearing bells and they're wearing ribbons on the, around their elbows. And
0: So it's a series of songs and dances that are done yeah, in villages yeah. generally? I
4: mean, there's more or less a, a a continuous tradition from Shakespeare's day up to the present day. I mean, you, a friend of mine did a PhD study of the origins of Morris dancing. He looked at the uh, records of the quarter sessions trial trials in England because a lot of Morris what dancers... Well, a lot of Morris dancers tended to get into trouble for drunkenness and brawling and uh, uh, not going to church on the Sabbath and these kind of things, and these cases would come to court and... Uh, This guy actually looked at uh, a whole series of trial reports for gross indecency and other things like that. And uh, he was able to trace um, Morris dancing back in a continuous history through the 18th and 17th centuries and back to uh, Shakespeare's day. we, of course, we're not like that nowadays. We're we're, we're far more reasonable. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
0: that's right. Why is it called Morris dancing?
4: Um... Some of the teams like to black their faces up, and the, the theory is it probably comes from the word Moorish. Um, in other words, the Moors of North Africa, black faces. Um, there's a, in Spain, there's a similar type of dance, and they call it Morisco, which is their word for Moor, Moorish. So that's, that's the, the sort of scholarly theory for where the word comes from.
0: Toy. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, Have you seen Morris dancing before?
5: No, first time. What do you think? Uh, interesting, can I use this word to describe? <laughs> and I think it's quite happy to share their,
0: their fun. So this is very English tradition? I think so. <laughs> that was a super dance that
5: you did there. Can you d- describe to me what it was? Uh, that was the uh, Notting is uh, yeah, the dance, the solo dance, from somewhere in uh, England. <laughs> That's, I know. So how, what first got you interested in Morris dancing? Uh, just, I don't know why. I, uh, I met uh, a lot of people in Hong Kong, uh, English people in Hong Kong. And uh, so I just uh, want to know something about more, yeah, the, about the, uh, the England yeah and I just happened to see an advertisement in uh South Channel morning, morning post. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. So tell me what your name is? Kyoko Fukuda. Yeah. And
0: I'm what did, what's your day de- what's your day job?
5: Day de- job. Now I have retired.
0: <laughs> so uh, so you're full time Morris dancer? Yes, right. <laughs> I think so.
5: Is it good exercise? Yeah, good exercise, yes. And after beer, that is good. Yeah, also good exercise, I believe. And then this is a, a tradition, I believe. I believe, yes.
0: Are there other Japanese
5: Morris dancers? Uh, no, so far, uh, I'm the alone, yes. Uh, only one for 20 years. <laughs> so
0: are you uh, an ambassador of Morris dancing for Japan? Yes, I think.
3: Oh dear mother, what a fool I've been. Six young fellas came courting
4: me. Five were blind and the other couldn't see. Oh dear mother, what a fool I've been. <laughs>
0: That, uh, are sung at some of the uh, start of some of the dances. Where do yeah. they come from?
4: Those songs, um, those are from a particular. The, 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 all three dances we did with songs were from the same village, Adderbury and Oxfordshire, and it just happens to be one of the villages where the songs have been preserved.
0: Now you were saying that uh, uh, prospectively during the it, it was founded actually mm. by Henry VIII. I, it
4: was founded in his reign, I think. Yeah, I imagine Henry VIII probably never saw a Morris dance in his life. I mean, the stuff they were doing at Hampton Court would be far more elegant and upper-class. than Morris dancing was very much a sort of lower-class thing, and they would be copying the type of dances that were done in the great halls of the time. So Henry wouldn't have seen it. Charles II certainly did when he was brought back after... After Cromwell's death. Um, yeah, because
0: Cromwell didn't like Morris dancing, Cromwell did he? Cromwell closed down he the
4: theatres, he? he closed down Morris dancing. So when Charles came back in 1660, there was this eruption of joy in his... Progress from Canterbury up to London. They were firing off cannons, and worse for the poor chap, there were morris dancers at every village along the route to London, who probably hadn't practiced for twelve years because Cromwell hadn't allowed it. <laughs> and uh, Samuel Pepys, who accompanied the king, was a di- that,
0: diarist. Uh, this
4: is the diarist. Yes, he went over to Utrecht to bring um, Charles back, and he mentions that by the time the king reached London, he had an, uh, he had God's own headache after four <laughs> days of this kind of thing. <laughs> But but Morris dancers always loved Charles II. He he allowed us to go back and do what it was we do best.
0: Now, I don't know whether I'm mixing up traditions now... Um... You, with the Morris dancers, does that involve the Maypole at all?
4: No, that's a different um, type of uh, folk tradition. But we are hoping this year to uh, celebrate May Day, not only with Morris dancing, but also with um, a display of Maypole dancing. And um, we have here John Layton, who can probably brief you on the advanced state of preparations for Maypole dancing this this May
5: i yeah, very, very pleased this year that uh, he's speaking to Mark Bromhead, the President of the Royal Society of St. George, Hong Kong branch. And he and several people are very keen to get uh, Maypole dancing up and running in Hong Kong again. So that will be a great event. Um, we're looking forward to that. So just a bit of organisation behind it. But it will be the traditional English village scene of children dancing around a the Maypole. There'll be some Morris dance and there'll be a bit of singing and a bit of merrymaking. So we're very much hoping that we can get that together for May Day this year. It'll be a great occasion.
0: Now, John, are you hoping to buy, buy these events like here at Soccer One? Uh, are you hoping to get new members?
5: We very much are. Um, there's a, an open invitation for people to come along. We're a very, uh, very, very friendly bunch. And uh, anyone who's interested to see who we are and what we do, please just check our website, uh, hkmorris.com, and uh, come along to any of our events, uh, free and open. And uh, if you fancy coming along to training, if anyone just wants to see what's going on, then please just get in contact. It's absolutely not a problem at all. We're very always open to to hearing inquiries and uh, to receive expressions of interest from new people. Do you have to be super fit, musical? No, not at all. No, it's actually it's actually a really good thing because it's all about fun.
3: My name is Stephen Palmer. I'm the foreman of the Hong Kong Morris, which basically means I teach the dancers and uh, get people ready to perform.
0: Today, what were the instruments that were used?
3: Today, we had violins and we had concertina and melodeon.
0: But back 500
3: years ago? Originally, you would see Morris dancers performing to what was called a pipe and taber. The pipe was a one-handed pipe with three holes, and then strung over the player's arm was a small drum that was called the taber, which the um, musician would use to keep the beat with. That then progressed into other instruments as they developed over the years, that, that it morphed into violins fiddles and so on and nowadays of course we have a much wider range with the concertinas the melodians and so on and so on and those instruments really carry a lot further as well
0: back in england i mean are there some morrises that keep it very very traditional with its origins
3: Morris dancing is really the generic name for all types of traditional folk dance from the different parts of England. So uh, originally from the northeast of England, you would have sword dances. The swords were actually um, what they used to scrape the coal dust off the pit ponies, and they developed that into a form of dance. In the northwest, you had Clog Morris that was de- um uh, danced by the mill workers so they would use the cotton bobs and the clogs that they wore to work and they would dress up using those and process to the churches, etc. You've got the... Border Morris from the English and Welsh borders performed mainly in the winter time when they had no work you have the Molly dancers from uh, East Anglia from Cambridgeshire that was uh, from the from the fens and the farm workers there and then you've got perhaps the more So the
0: Molly dancers why were they called that
3: uh, To be honest I'm not really <laughs> sure the Molly was often a name given to the fool of the side uh, and so the, uh, the, the Molly dancers, they would dress up in, in a range of, of co- costumes and although it was danced by men, some of them would actually dan- uh, dress up as wi- women.
0: So is Morris dancing, quite a lot of it would have been in the early years though orally carried on generation to generation?
3: Very much so and we were very lucky that somebody like Cecil Sharp and others came along and collected them because during the wars and especially with the Boer War and the First World War War and the movement of people from the villages to the towns a lot of it could have died out and actually a lot of it did die out but we're able to at least maintain some record and some history which is fantastic
0: my thanks to the members of the hong kong morris thanks for listening and join me next week on hong kong heritage